Hi everybody, I'm Athena and welcome back to Finding Flow podcast. This podcast is all about inspiring women to become the healthiest and happiest versions of themselves that they can possibly be. Join me each week as we talk about all things to do with women's health, nutrition, periods, hormones, mindset and all of that good stuff. If you enjoy the podcast and you find it really helpful, then I would absolutely love for you to support me by leaving me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and also a rating on Spotify. Hi everybody and welcome back to Finding Flow podcast. Today I'm joined by a lovely woman called Sarah who is an exercise physiologist and also a coach. So she coaches people through disordered eating recovery and HA recovery so that they can get their periods back and really improve their relationship with food and exercise. She's the founder and coach of Recovery Club and she also has her own podcast called Holistic Health Radio. In today's episode we spoke all about exercise, exercise addiction and compulsion, especially during eating disorders and HA. We also spoke about what kinds of exercise you should be doing during HA recovery and how you can really target any negative thoughts that you might have around exercise and around the compulsion that you have to exercise and how you can really shift these thoughts from being negatives and being sort of compulsions into more positive thoughts that focus around enjoyment and moving your body because it's fun and not out of compulsion. I really hope this episode is helpful and with that let's welcome Sarah. Oh hi Sarah and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me I'm really excited to be on. Yeah I'm I'm so excited for our conversation there is so much that we could talk about but we're going to focus today on mainly sort of exercise addiction and exercise compulsion around HA and eating disorders so I guess before we get into that I'd love to learn a bit more about your personal story your experience with exercise addiction eating disorders HA um so yeah just just tell us a little bit about um sort of where your story begins and how you got to where you are today Yeah. So I will try and not give you the extended version because I feel like whenever someone asks, tell me your story, there are so many different parts and so many layers to it. But my story began back in high school, essentially. Um, I remember being in year 12. So that's like our final year. And I went, I was going to school. I still live in Australia and I was finishing my final year of school in Australia. I'm actually American. So you can probably hear my accents a little bit mixed as I talk. Um, but yeah, I was in year 12. That's kind of when we all had like school formals and people were getting more interested in boys. And like, there was just so much more body talk compared to any other time in my life, which I'd never really been exposed to. I'd never really thought about my body. I'd always been super sporty and just kind of eaten what I wanted, but you know, our family was generally healthy. So I never really thought twice about anything. And I noticed all of that changed in year 12. 
the first thing was like, I was so stressed because they put so much pressure on you. You know, you have to do so well on all these exams. They're like the defining factor of your future life. Um, so I started getting really bad irritable bowel syndrome symptoms. Um, and I'd always had a quite a sensitive stomach. So I went to the doctor and the doctor was like, here is like some medication, go and see a dietitian. So I remember going to see that dietitian and she was like, oh, you need to follow like a low FODMAP diet. And part of my brain was like, yes, a way to restrict food. And I just, I remember thinking that and telling nobody. But I knew I was like, well, I don't have to eat these foods anymore. And I don't have to eat those foods anymore. And even though I made it out to be this big pain in the butt change that I had to make, part of me was also like, well, number one, I might feel a little bit better, which will be good. But number two, maybe my body will change. And that was the really small, sneaky thought in the background that I don't even think I acknowledged, but that's where it started. Now from there, it really spiraled. So I finished school, my body didn't really change that much. I kind of was like a bit back and forth with the foods that I ate, but I asked my parents when they were like, what would you like as a graduation present? I was like, I want a gym membership. I remember there was a girl that I worked with. She went to the super fancy gym, had like a pool and like a spa and tennis courts and all these really cool things. I was like, I want to go there. That looks like a really fun way to spend my time. I'd never really gone to a gym before, but I was like, okay, I guess I should do something now that I'm not playing school sport. And that was kind of my first foray into exercise. And I think it's really important like for listeners to know, like I, I didn't have a I didn't know what a normal amount of exercise was. I was always like super sporty and outdoors. So like my whole weekends, I would be doing, doing things like riding horses or like on my bike. So nobody ever said like doing too much exercise is a bad thing because I'd always balanced it out with, you know, enough food, enough rest, taking a day off when I wanted to. But when I started the gym, it was fine until I decided to do this like bikini bodybuilding competition. And that was like the beginning of the end of my positive relationship with food and exercise. Um, because it requires you to be super diligent about things. And I just remember training so hard and being strict about my diet and always thinking about food and like just being moody all the time just to step on this stage and be judged by complete strangers and be told whether or not my body was good. And I think about it now and I was like, oh my God, I had such a warped perception of what I was doing and my own self-worth. But at the time I was studying nutrition and I was doing my personal training certificate. And I thought to myself, well, if I have a medal, then people will think I'm really good at what I do and I'll be super successful and everyone will want to work with me. I mean, I know so much better now. Hindsight is a beautiful thing, but I didn't just do that one competition. I did that one competition and then I was like, okay, now I'm going to get serious about it. Cause I came second and I was like, now I'm going to get super serious about, um, you know, this next competition. And I, that's when my disordered eating probably truly became an eating disorder. Now I was 
lucky enough to have the wherewithal to kind of catch myself before going into that competition and actually go, oh my God, no, this is a problem. I can't go through with this. I can't step on that stage. I'm actually so unwell physically and mentally. And that was the first point in time where I actually got help from my eating disorder. Went to a GP, he referred me to a a CS psychologist and I also saw um, a dietitian. And throughout my whole recovery experience, I saw many different dietitians and psychologists and therapists and things, but this was the kind of start. and just the, the immediate change from what I was eating to what they wanted me to eat was just so vastly different. And I really struggled with it because I was so used to seeing my body a certain way. And in this like bodybuilding world, I've got such a warped perception of like what an okay amount of food actually is versus like the semi-starvation that you're kind of used to putting yourself through. Um, So that was really hard. And I found it really interesting because I actually went to the bodybuilding competition as a spectator to see some of my quote unquote friends. They weren't really friends, but like you kind of get all wrapped up in the same cohort of people that are doing the same things you are. And I remember one of the guys saying, oh my God, you look so amazing. Why aren't you competing? And I was like in active wear wearing like a really thick jacket on a pretty averagely warm day because my body was just so cold and undernourished. And I was really proud. Like I think back to this moment and how proud I am of what I said, which is like, I am not well at all. I am not coping, which is why I didn't do this. Like I'm so sick. I can't get myself out of this mindset of just needing to diet more and be smaller. Like, and he was like, oh, I had no idea. But anyway, that was the beginning of what was a very long journey to heal my relationship with food. And there were so many ups and downs, but I would say that I struggled actively with an eating disorder for about five years before I really hit a point where I was like, this is it. I can't do this anymore. I can't be having to like study the same sentence 5 million times and still not absorb the information because I was at uni I can't be feeling cold all the time. I don't want to be so tired that I can never say yes to going to social things like this is enough. Um, I just got fed up with my own BS, to be honest. And I ended up putting my name down for an outpatient program. And that was probably the most helpful thing I ever did in terms of recovering from my eating disorder. So this outpatient program, you basically go in, you have shared meals together, you do therapy, you get exposed to all the foods you're absolutely terrified of. You see a dietitian and externally to that, I was also seeing another psychologist at the time as well. And I stayed doing that for about somewhere between six to nine months. I can't even remember. And over the uni break, I went four days a week. So I was really throwing myself into this kind of just going, I got to give it everything that I've got. And it worked. I would say after that, I took a break from seeing um, psychologists and dietitians regularly because I really just wanted to focus on my freedom that had been so suppressed by having an active eating disorder and rebuilding 
my life and being social. And now that I have the confidence to try new foods, actually go and travel and go out to eat with my friends and find a form of exercise that I really liked versus one that I thought I should do. And that was probably two and a half to three years of me just kind of like finding myself again, which can be exhilarating and terrifying at the same time, because you realize how much your eating disorder can take away from you. But in and amongst all that, even though I was quote unquote, weight restored to where they want me to be and had so much more freedom and felt really relaxed and said yes to social situations, I still didn't have my period back. And that was kind of like always that thing that was in the back of my mind that said, you know, this still isn't normal. Like this isn't good. This isn't healthy. And, you know, would go to different doctors and they would just say to me like, oh, you probably have PCOS or, you know, like we can put you on the pill or something like that. And nobody ever gave me a clear answer until one day I went to this talk hosted by the gym that I went to at the time that was run by a dietitian. And she was saying about how she lost her period. And it was this condition called hypothalamic amenorrhea. She started listing off all the symptoms that she had and how it occurred and how she had been misdiagnosed. And I was like, oh my God, I don't have PCOS. I have what she has, which is hypothalamic amenorrhea. And that was the like light bulb moment where I was like, I have to go through that recovery process just like she did. And hopefully my period will come back. So I had HA for 10 years, like a really long time um, to not have a period for 10 years. And throughout part of that journey, like when I had relationships, I was still like, oh, I should take birth control, even though I wasn't ovulating. Um, So I was on the pill for part of that time and on different forms of contraceptions for part of that time, but I didn't have a real period for 10 years. And so I was like, okay, well, this process requires me to gain even more weight, which feels a bit scary and to cut back hugely on exercise, but let's just see if it works. And lo and behold, I was not a unicorn. I was not the odd one out. It did actually work for me. And within about six months of really kind of putting a lot of effort in, I managed to get my period back. And then it took about another year for those cycles to be quite regular. And I think that's a really important thing to note for anyone listening is it's definitely not a linear process, but if you have patience and consistency and someone guiding you, like I went and worked with the dietitian that I saw talking that day. And I was like, you know, I need support. I need guidance. I need someone to tell me. Um, if I'm doing the right things, it came back and it can come back for you too. So then that ultimately led me once I was healed to doing what I do today. Um, I definitely gave it a couple of years after I had recovered to just dive into doing a bit of research, doing extra professional development. I'd still been working, um, in private practice and, um, in the hospital system, actually the hospital that I went as an inpatient, sorry, an outpatient to um, in terms of helping them with exercise and eating disorders before I went into helping clients with HA. Like I just really wanted to make sure I was fully healed and knew everything there was to know before I made it part of what I do now for work, which 
full circle feels really like a really lovely place to be. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing your story. It's, you know, it's so heartbreaking, but so inspiring at the same time. And, oh, there's so many different things that, you know, we could touch on in that story. The one thing that kind of stood out to me that I wanted to point out is the fact that if you go through an eating disorder and then you develop hypothalamic amenorrhea from the eating disorder, a bit like both of us did, it's, you can recover from the eating disorder, but I feel like it's a whole second recovery to get your period back. I feel like it's, you know, you can, you can weight restore yourself and then you can kind of think, right, well, I don't really have an eating disorder anymore. You know, I'm a normal weight. I eat a normal amount. You know, you can compare yourself to the norms, but then if you still don't have your period, you kind of have to think there's something that's not quite right. Like my body still isn't trusting me. So for you, you said you needed to eat a bit more and cut back on the exercise. Do you think that exercise is sort of one of the main reasons why people do suffer with hypothalamic amenorrhea? Or is it, do you think more to do with restriction or is it both? It's a great question. Usually it's a combination of both. I feel like at the moment, high intensity exercise is just having its heyday. And like as females, if you're not fueling your body adequately for that kind of exercise, it does put you at that really high risk of basically going into what we call low energy availability. So your body's remainder of resources after it accounts for the cost of exercise in terms of how much energy it takes to do that like 45 minute hit workout. What it has left after that is really, really low. And so that's where it starts to kind of really uh, try and save as much as it can on those really costly physiological processes. And you can develop hypothalamic amenorrhea and a whole host of other symptoms. Um, but I think that's that, that high intensity exercise or like just wanting to do lots of exercise while also not really truly being aware of how much energy that requires. I mean, as women, we're also sold the idea that eating less is always better. So it just kind of, there's so many factors that lead us to that place of, having a HA diagnosis. So no two people's situation is the same, but there are definitely some common themes. Yeah, for sure. Do you find that most of your clients sort of, do you find that most of your clients are sort of aware that the exercise might be a contributing factor to their HA? Or do you think it's something that people, like a lot of people don't really realize and you have to sort of, coach them into realizing if that makes sense yeah it's it's actually really true because a lot of people when we first start out they're like oh I don't actually do that much exercise I go to the gym five days a week and I work out for 90 minutes but it's not that much and <laughs> I think that's just like that statement alone is like okay well what do you think is too much then if that is your idea of not that much because for a lot of people that might have been a lower amount compared to what they were doing before, because 
you know, if we think about social media, for instance, like there are so many training programs and challenges and things that require a person to do a huge amount of exercise, which is then glorified and becomes a person's new normal. So, you know, like an eight week challenge that requires like an hour of cardio and an hour of strength training, if that becomes a person's normal, then their definition of what's okay and enough is really vastly different to someone who's never been to a gym or never done an eight week challenge. So it is really about educating someone about like, that's actually a really high level of exercise, especially given this is your energy intake, like your body's telling us that you're really, really struggling. And when I kind of go through, I guess, the education and the sports science side of things and teach people about like all kinds of different things, like, you know, going to the gym, is it where you get stronger? It's actually where you break down muscle tissue. And unless you're providing your body with rest and recovery and nutrition, your performance isn't going to go up. It's going to go down. And that's probably what you're noticing with your workouts is like, you're actually not hitting greater weights or more reps, or maybe you are for a short period of time, but your risk of injury or overtraining is so much higher than if you were actually doing a smart training program that allowed you adequate rest and recovery versus you just absolutely smashing yourself in the gym. So for a lot of people, it's a step down process so they can mentally get to a point of being okay with managing with less exercise in their lives to go through that recovery process properly. Yeah, for sure. I can definitely resonate with what you said there about going to the gym and working out, but seeing no progress. And that was me for like, for so long, for for years, I would go to the gym and I'd be like, why, why am I lifting the same weights as I was two years ago? Yet I go to the gym five times a week and I work really hard. Like, and it just baffled me because I was like, what am I doing wrong? And when I look back at it, aside from, you know, the physiological, you know, decreased growth hormone and all that kind of thing. I just wasn't eating enough. And that's kind of as simple as that. If you're not fueling your body, you're you're not going to put the muscle on. Um, No. Would you say that? Yeah. Would you say that um, there is a healthy amount of exercise that somebody can do while they are going through HA recovery? Or do you recommend to sort of just stop as much as you can? So this is such a nuanced, I'm going to give such a nuanced answer, which people will probably hate, but for some (laughs) people they need um, a full break from exercise while other people can maintain some exercise. So I guess the times that we would recommend a full break from exercise are when you feel like you have a really warped relationship with it. So you use it purely to kind of like earn your food or burn it off, or it comes from a place of like, I should, or I must rather than I'd love to, it would feel great. Right. And the full break from exercise actually allows us to pull on other coping strategies. And I guess, accept the fact that when we don't have exercise in our lives, we're okay. We can handle things, right? It's something that's enjoyable. And we'll probably get to a point where we really want to go for a walk that feels mindful and joyful and, not like a march around the block like it used to be, but it might take a couple of weeks. So 
that full break from exercise is something that I get everyone to do for at least like a week. I call it an exercise holiday. I was just like, you know, you should be able to, to go on holiday and not have access to a gym or need to go on specific walks at specific times. You should be okay with just nourishing your body and sleeping enough and getting on what you need to do with work without kind of stressing about your training during the day. Now, for a lot of people, they need to kind of just maintain with really low intensity exercise so that the food that they're eating can be used to go towards restoring and repairing not only their menstrual cycle, but all of those other things that happen when we have HA. So, you know, hair, skin and nails being like healthier, shinier, stronger, our thyroid function improving, digestion getting better, all of those like feeling warmer instead of cold all the time. All of those are signs that your body's actually doing the work. And I know it can be hard to kind of put what kind of exercise that you were doing on pause, but in the long run, it's the most beneficial. So it's never long-term. I'm a big, 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 big advocate for strength training, but there's a time and a place for it. If you have HA, you don't have estrogen flowing through your body. You don't have half the hormones that are going to really help you get the benefits out of progressive overload, which you should not be doing during HA recovery. There's no way a person can maintain progressive overload. At most, you should be doing a modified strength training program, which we do get some of our clients to do, especially the like if we see athletes and dancers and things like they do have to maintain some exercise during their recovery, but it is super modified compared to what they were doing before to allow that food to go in and do the work and repair, bring back your period. Yeah, sure. I think it must be so difficult when you do have a client who is an athlete, they're a dancer. It's, it's part of like their lifestyle. It's what they do. And it must be so difficult to try and navigate around that do you wait until your clients get to a certain point maybe physically or mentally until you start to increase their exercise or is it is it very much about working with them and seeing how they feel in themselves again it's no two situations that are the same so oftentimes it's we really have to like hold the fort So we're really the ones that are like, I know maybe your periods come back, but we really can't do anything to increase your training until we know that that period is consistent and your body shows us the signs that it feels safe and it feels like it can maintain this menstrual cycle. So until that, we can't really change the exercise that you're doing. We can change some of the specific exercises that you're doing within a program, but we can't increase the volume or the intensity just yet. And while a lot of them are really disheartened to hear that, news because obviously it's the last thing they want they want to get back to being competitive and feeling strong and um, doing what they love they do mostly understand why it's necessary so yeah a lot of the time we are the gatekeepers of exercise only for a short period of time until we actually see that their bodies are responding well maintaining that menstrual cycle And then we get to have the really joyful part of guiding them back to full capacity of exercise, which we do through one of the programs that we run, which is our online progressive uh, strength training program. And that is probably, 
yeah, the most wonderful thing to see because you actually get to witness people going, oh my God, this is how it should feel when I train and rest properly and recover and nourish my body. I'm actually getting so much stronger, feels so much better. And we teach them things about like deload weeks and how to pick the right load and all of the rest of it. So yeah, a short term, I guess, strain in someone's relationship with exercise is really that long-term gain so that they get back to doing what they love, but their mindset around it is so much more improved as well as physically they're performing so much better. Yeah, amazing. I love that you focus on the educational side of things as well as, you know, helping people through it. And I think it, even though like when you say it out loud, you know, a short-term strain for a long-term gain, I guess, it sounds so, you know, simple and you just think, oh, well, just stop exercising for a bit and you'll be fine. And then you can get what you want. You can get your period back. But it's so difficult when you're going through that short-term strain to actually think about the future. How do you help your clients change their mindsets around exercise? Do you have particular sort of strategies that you use or techniques? Yeah. And I 100% agree first and foremost that you can know rationally how beneficial something can be to your health. Rationally, you can know that giving up exercise and eating more makes so much sense given HA being your diagnosis and the condition that you're, you're going through to recover from. But we're not rational creatures. We are emotional creatures. And as a result, we are feeling beings that sometimes think versus thinking beings that sometimes feel. So you can't rationalize your way through this. So a big part of the process and kind of like helping someone handle that, that short-term pain is really going, what is the pain? What are the feelings? Can you sit with the fact that you kind of have to grieve the loss of your previous fitness identity and maybe a body type that was glorified, but where people had no idea that that actually truly wasn't healthy for you. We have to help our clients sit through all of those and really not run away or try and numb out for them from those feelings or push them down like they might've done through those more disordered behaviors, but actually go, your smaller body can't protect you against ever feeling this feeling like you thought it might've. Because that's kind of like what disordered thinking makes us believe that if we're small, we are so powerful and we'll never be unhappy or experience any difficult emotion. But honestly, that's not true. And a big, big, big part of recovery is learning how to process your emotions and use healthy coping strategies when you get to those really sticky places in recovery where you want to say, screw it and go for a run because you're having a really bad body image day, that's the moment where you kind of go, what am I actually trying to run away from here? And if running wasn't available to me, how would I cope in this situation? So those are the kinds of main strategies we help people through and with. And there are so many different aspects of it, like 
body image, like I mentioned before, and distress tolerance and, and radical acceptance of emotions and changing and unlearning belief systems. And that is really where the healing starts for a lot of people in being able to accept this different amount of exercise and potentially exercise even looking different once a person is recovered. So it is one of the things that I love the most because it is so multifaceted. Is definitely very, very multifaceted. So if you, if somebody does, you know, one of your clients does say, oh, like I was really struggling. I wanted to go for a run and I didn't know what to do with myself. Do you like, is there anything that you recommend people to do when they are, you know, on like urging to exercise? Do you recommend like journaling, meditation, walking, painting? Like, is there anything in particular that yeah. you find clients find really helpful? Yeah. So journaling is a big one. So one of my biggest things is a lot of people, when they notice a feeling or an urge, they feel like they need to fix it. And one of the things I always tell clients and people in recovery is you don't need to fix a feeling or an urge in order to respond to it. All I'm asking you is to respond to it. I don't expect the feelings to magically go away or expect the urge to magically go away. I just want you to respond to it in a different way. So journaling can be a really beautiful way to explore the urge or explore the feelings or explore the thoughts in a non-judgmental and curious way. So it's really just about getting everything that's going on in your mind, outside of your mind and onto a piece of paper. Um, and there's no real structure to it. I do often give clients a whole bunch of journal prompts that can be useful. And that's a really great way to get started because you can just pick one and use that to kind of get your writing started. But for other people, I'm just like, just do a brain dump, like everything that just comes in as a thought, even if it doesn't have anything to do with the urge or the feeling, just write it down, get it out of your brain, try and make sense of it later. You don't need to be perfect about this journaling process. So Journaling is definitely a big one. The other one is obviously talking to someone about it because the problem shared is a problem halved. So having a good support system and just being like, you know what, I don't really need you to fix whatever I'm going through right now, but do you have the space for me to just like sit down and vent for a minute because I am feeling like really jumbled in my mind about wanting to go for a run, but knowing that I, I really shouldn't go. So those are the two main things I definitely encourage people to do. I love those. And to sort of finish up the podcast, actually, I'd love for you to give maybe one or two journal prompts that somebody could use if they are struggling to, you know, just process their thoughts around reducing their exercise and fighting against those urges to exercise uh, give us like I don't know yeah two two journal prompts that we could use oh putting me on the spot I guess one of the um really good ones is do I want the I guess life debilitating pain of staying the state of staying the same or do I want the life enhancing pain of moving forward? So that can really help someone see that both of these choices that a person makes every single day, whether to do that disordered behavior or go back and do the exercise is a painful choice. And there are consequences. It's also painful to change. 
but usually that change is more aligned with our values. And that's the other thing that can be a really great thing to focus on, which is like, why is this important to me? Why is this important to me? Really, really bring it back to your why. And if you haven't done an exercise on finding your why, I really encourage you to do so as kind of like one of the first things that you do as you dive into recovery, because I always say to my clients, and that's like one of the first things we do in the Healing HA course is like, find your North star, find the reason why you are going through this process, which will be different for every single person. Maybe it's that you want to fall pregnant. Maybe it's that you want to make sure that your bones stay strong. You don't have osteoporosis when you get older or that you just want to use this as the opportunity to get over those last lingering disordered behaviors, find your why. And every time that you have a moment where you feel like you stumble a little bit, go back to that and revisit it and expand on it if you need to. But those would be my guess two journal prompts that could be really beneficial for people going through recovery. Thank you for sharing those. I love those. I think it's so, so important to keep your why in mind because when you are you know struggling you can remember why you are going through this struggle and what the end goal really is so thank Mm. you so much Sarah it's been it's been so amazing chatting to you today and to finish up could you let people know where they can find you um you know a little bit about your course and how they can sign up to the course if they want to yeah so um the best way to find me, I'm most active on Instagram. My handle is at Sarah Liz King. So I'm sure you can find that very easily. I also run a podcast, which I'm very excited to be having you on very soon as well. Um, and that is called Holistic Health Radio. So some great resources for anyone in eating disorder and HA recovery. As you said, we do run a course called Healing HA, which is a group and one-to-one hybrid course. So we provide group support as well as like a one-to-one element to it. So you always get paired with a coach and you get daily messaging and some one-to-one sessions so that you really get that personalized aspect to your recovery. So we run that throughout the year. So depending on when this podcast goes live, we've got a course that is kicking off on April 25th. So very, very soon. Um, and you can find all the details through my Instagram. But if it's after that date, the next one will be later this year. So we always have a wait list if you are interested in joining. Amazing. Thank you. And just to quickly touch on your podcast, I've I've been like binge listening to your podcast for the past like two weeks. So yeah, I, I really, really recommend people to go and listen to your podcast because it's like every episode is just packed full of so much amazing information and there are so many little like little things that you say that I've picked up on that I'm like oh my god like it's it really gets you thinking deeper uh, so I really recommend people to listen to your podcast check out your course and um, I'm gonna put you know your Instagram and your website in the show notes so people can just click there and go straight to the info that they need. Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, It's been amazing. And I'm really excited to come onto your podcast next week. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for this to go live. So that is the end of today's episode. If you enjoyed, I would love for you to leave me a five-star review on Apple and Spotify. 
I'm now also uploading the episodes onto YouTube. So if you just type in Finding Flow Podcast, it should pop up and you can watch the videos. I'm only really doing video for the guest episodes. So if you go onto YouTube, you will find my solo episodes, but it will just be audio for those with a sort of still image. Um, But nonetheless, if you use YouTube and you'd rather listen to your podcasts over on there, then you can do that now. Um, If you want to connect with me on Instagram, it's at Finding Flow Podcast and I will see you in the next episode.